Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 109. We're talking about fiber, the most interesting food component ever, I think. I mean, you know, I didn't take a, we didn't take a vote. There's no Gallup <laughs> poll. I have no evidence for that. So we just got, we just got sick of tired of talking about protein. So <laughs> yeah, right. There's only so many things you could talk about with protein. And then, you know, hopefully with this podcast, uh, you know, people aren't asking us about optimal dietary fiber timing, but you know, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see, you know, this podcast is brought to you by Metamucil. Metamucil <laughs> just, I'm waiting for the sponsorship from, uh, either big prune or, uh, Metamucil or psyllium husk or, uh, you know, the big fruit and vegetable industry, th- those, those crooked, you know, <laughs> polyphenols and flavonoids. There's no, anyway, uh, enough joking around. Yeah. This is episode 109. We're talking about dietary fiber. I'm joined as always by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. Austin, what's up, dude? Hey, I'm here ready to do this. To, to be fair, this was your idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, when we talk a lot about what health promoting dietary patterns, uh, what they are and, uh, yet, I haven't seen uh, very much content put out on this particular topic, so I thought it was about time that we do that. Yeah, I mean, we could just spend the next hour talking about, you know, optimal, you know, footwear during resistance training or like (laughs) rooting your feet into the ground or, you know, all sorts of, you know, irrelevancies related to uh, exercise technique. But instead, we'll, we'll try to talk about something useful, dietary fiber and a uh, health-promoting dietary pattern. All right, so let's start with some definitions. Austin, well, you want to tell us what dietary fiber actually is? Yeah, so it's kind of uh, interesting in that it comes to comes down to some basics of, of cell biology differences between plants and animals. And so plants have cell walls, uh, which uh, animal, animal cells do not. And so there are uh, components of edible plants that are located in their cell walls um, that these consist of carbohydrates and some non-carbohydrate uh, kind of components in their cell wall that are edible, but not necessarily digestible by, uh, by us. And um, when we consume these, these, because they don't end up getting digested and absorbed the way the rest of the dietary macronutrients do, that leads to some uh, downstream consequences that we'll get to that can uh, tend to have health-promoting effects. Yeah, there's two main main flavors of uh, fiber. Um, one is dietary fiber, so that's just fiber again, that indigestible or non-digestible component in foods. So what you're normally consuming, hopefully. And then there's functional fiber. Now this isn't fiber that like went and took a CrossFit class, is <laughs> you know <laughs> super fit. Uh, it's effectively isolated or extracted or purified or otherwise manufactured non-digestible components from food. So fiber supplements, for example, doesn't count as dietary fiber, it'd be functional fiber. So uh, when you're counting, you know, total fiber for the day, uh, it's a combination of both of them. You don't need to really worry about that difference. It's just, if you hear these different types, I I just didn't want you guys to be thinking about or thinking, well, barbell medicine didn't just didn't talk about functional fiber. What is functional fiber? So in any case, uh, our resident chemist, Dr. Austin Baraki, uh, basically kind of gave you the overview um, about what fi- dietary fiber is. Uh, and he, he mentioned that it is mostly found in the plant cell walls. And there, again, that's one of the big like differences between animal cells, and plant cells, plant cells have cell walls. Basically, plant the cell walls of plants contain over 95% of dietary fibers. Uh, and when we're talking about just the edible parts of the plant, you know, the leaf, the root, the stem, um, yeah, all the cell walls uh, tend to contain most of the dietary fiber of that plant. Now, depending on the species uh, or the part of the plant and then like how mature the plant is, you know, uh, how, how, how long it's been growing and then this, uh, the environment it's been growing in uh, effectively change the fiber content. Uh, and again, like Austin said before, animal cells do not have cell walls, thus animal foods do not have fiber. So, you know, people are uh, wondering like, hey, how much fiber is in this chicken? Answer, <laughs> zero. hopefully zero, <laughs> because if it's not zero, you got some interesting stuff going on in that, in that, clucker, that clucker of yours. As Austin kind of alluded to earlier, uh, fibers 
effectively refers to the non-digestible component of foods that we, that we consume. What we mean by non-digestible isn't that they remain intact and whole, uh, you know, from mouth to uh, the other end, but rather they don't get uh, broken down and absorbed in the small intestine, which is where most of uh, human um, uh, digestion actually uh, occurs. Some of it obviously in the in the oral cavity, some in the stomach. Uh, most of it happening in the small intestine. So effectively, if you're a protein, for example, let's say that you're a little amino acid, uh, you get broken down in the stomach and then further catalog uh, broken down in the small intestine, and then absorbed through the you know small intestine's wall into the portal vein, which basically goes to the liver, and then you know your fate is determined from there. If you're dietary fiber, you follow that same path, but you don't really get broken down in the stomach. You don't really get broken down in the small intestine. Rather, you enter the large intestine basically intact, and then the resident bacteria in the large intestine ferment you sometimes, depending on what type of fiber you are. Uh, and actually, that uh, and when they get fermented, when the fiber gets fermented, um, that tends to do a whole host of cool things. But uh, one of the main things that we'll talk about and keep coming back to is that you get fermented and broken down into a short chain fatty acid, uh, one of which is called uh, butyrate. And, uh, you know, that's a that's a fun fact you can bring up in casual conversation at the bar <laughs> and people will uh, really think that you know what you're talking about. It's kind of like being able to recite the Krebs cycle. If you can do that from start to finish, people are like, I have no idea what you just said, but you sounded really smart. So yeah. you can bring up <laughs> you can bring up that fiber is uh, tends to be broken down a large intestine. I would uh, I would just point out here too that uh, that you know most people are familiar with the concept of a of a microbiome that that we have or the the, the healthy bacteria or sometimes less healthy bacteria that live in on and on us um, and and principally that the gut microbiome is is primarily localized in the large intestine or the colon which is the part of the gut that is primarily responsible for water absorption after the majority of digestion and nutrient absorption has been completed in the small intestine. There are some situations where some of that, that the bacteria there uh, can, can kind of spread into the small intestine, but that's not the normal state of things. Typically, the small intestine doesn't have much of a, you know, at least as, as we understand it currently, doesn't have a, a substantial microbiome where it's primarily in the large intestine. And that's where once the fibers get in there, they can get fermented into these various compounds, including the, the short chain fatty acids that then have the subsequent local and to, and to some extent systemic uh, kind of uh, uh, effects. And so since fibers uh, can pass into the colon and influence these bacteria, either drive their metabolic activity, promote their growth, um, things like that. This this raises the concept of a prebiotic, and prebiotics are defined as these types of fibers that um, that uh, uh, influence microbial activity and growth in the gut. And just to be clear, these are not the same thing as probiotics, which is what people are more likely to have heard of, which are the actual live microorganisms. Like when people think about eating, you know, yogurt with live cultures, that's like actual bacteria that are being consumed. Prebiotics are instead things that are not themselves organisms or bacteria, but rather they are like food for the organisms that are already in, in our guts. And so with all this in mind, you can see how people's dietary patterns uh, can influence the composition of their microbiome. In, in other words, it can promote kind of the, the increase in proportion of so-called, you know, healthy gut bacteria, or um, if there's insufficient intake, um, then you can end up with uh, less preferable compositions of your gut microbiome. And in general, people, you know, the thinking currently is that when people have a higher degree of diversity, uh, in their microbiome, lots of different species. There are certain ones in particular that have been identified that are thought to be more, you know, beneficial health promoting. Um, that's a good thing versus, you know, very low fiber diets, uh, particularly low, very low fiber and higher fat diets seem to select for, uh, gut microbiomes that are lower in microbial diversity, which is thought to not be, uh, preferable. Yep. Similar to exercise variations, you do you know, you, you want more of those and, and you want more variety in your, uh, in your gut, if you can, if you can do that. And so, um, while we don't really buy into or specifically try to talk about quote unquote gut health, if you are trying to improve your, the health promoting potential of your dietary pattern, it would likely include an increase in dietary fiber from a variety of different dietary fiber containing foods. Uh, would you agree with that Dr. B? Yeah. Yeah. I think I would. Minus just using the word gut health 
which yeah. kind of just <laughs> makes it me just, think that it just raises it just it just wakes the quacks up. So we tend to not. Use yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it attracts bears also. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so without getting too far off course, which is really why the only reason I'm here. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about the different types of dietary fiber because I think people, this is where people's eyes glaze over and they, you know, you, you, you really feel like this topic is almost overwhelming in, in, in breadth and depth. Uh, people want to talk about soluble versus insoluble fiber, uh, and then really make a big deal about that. Here's the, here's, you know, if you listen, if you want to skip the next 10 minutes, I, my feelings won't be hurt. I won't even know. Okay. But <laughs> Insoluble and insoluble fibers are usually found in the same foods. What I'm getting at is that many foods, particularly ones that would be high sources of dietary fiber uh, for humans, um, contain both. And, you know, a dietary pattern that includes, you know, fruits and vegetables, whole grains, legumes, all these other sort of things, you're going to get both. And there are certain unique properties of both that, you know, you might need to identify or describe on a nutrition test right? Like if you're, if that's your profession or vocation, um, but otherwise don't really matter as far as you picking foods to consume. Because if you're following, you know, these sort of, yeah, I'm going to eat fruits and vegetables. I'm going to eat uh, whole grains. I'm going to consume legumes, etc. It just takes care of itself. You don't need to be like, I wonder what the soluble fiber content is of this, unless you're just curious, in which case that's fine. Now, I'll uh, refer this to our resident chemist. What is the major difference or what are the major differences between insoluble and soluble fibers? Yeah, so the, 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 the term soluble and insoluble, as you suggested, are, are chemistry terms referring to uh, the tendency or ability of something to dissolve in something else. And so uh, in this particular context, we're talking about water. And so something can be water soluble, so it can dissolve into water, or it can be water insoluble, meaning it does not dissolve in water. It, you could have something that is fat soluble or lipid soluble, um, and that would describe it being able to dissolve in a different solution, basically. So that's what we're talking about in terms of differentiating these things. And like you said, these are more chemistry kind of distinctions than they are important distinctions for people to be thinking about actively and managing their diet because that's just not necessary. Rather, you know, this is more academic because we recognize that a lot of our audience likes to geek out on stuff like this. <laughs> yep. So insoluble fiber uh, tends to, when added, when it's added to water, does not form this like viscous gummy solution. It's non-viscous. They're poorly fermented uh, in general. They increase the bulk of uh, fecal matter, so fecal bulking, and they also speed up the transit time. So, you know, if you, if you need to go or you want to go, insoluble fiber might be your jam. Um, but still promote growth of bacteria in the colon, like we mentioned before, uh, and generate lactate and short-chain fatty acids. Uh, chemi- uh, as far as the actual, like, you know, what are the types of insoluble fiber? Uh, cellulose, hemicellulose, and lignin. And again, uh, cellulose and hemicellulose are carbohydrate components of the plant cell wall. Lignin is a non-carbohydrate uh, component of the plant cell wall. Uh, foods that would in- that include a bunch of insoluble fiber, bran, legumes, nuts, peas, root vegetables, cabbage, uh, family vegetables, outer coverings of seeds, and apples. Uh, there's also like different t- forms of like powdered cellulose that's added to food for like thickening or texturing to prevent caking and leakage. So breads, cake mixes, sauces, dips, and certain frozen meat products might actually have some cellulose. So if you actually do see some dietary fiber in a, you know, frozen meat product, don't be like, well, Jordan said there's something wrong with my meat if it's got <laughs> some fiber in there. Well, they probably added some cellulose there and it's, you know, not going to hurt you, but that also wouldn't be like a great source of dietary fiber, just FYI. One example of insoluble fiber that comes up over and over again that people I really feel like just are missing the forest for the trees here. Uh, is resistant starch. This is a specific type of uh, insoluble fiber. Uh, effectively, this is a starch that cannot uh, cannot be or is uh, not necessarily easily digested by humans. And uh, so it's similar to fiber um, in that it's not really digestible. So it passes into the colon where it again is metabolized by the bacteria and a short chain fatty acids like butyrate, which we've already kind of alluded to. There are four different types or five different types and they all have different numbers, RS1, RS2, RS3, RS4 or 5. So um, 
probably the biggest example in the fitness industry where people have heard uh, about this is RS3, resistant starch three. So effectively you cook rice or potatoes and then you let them cool to room temperature. And then some of the carbohydrate con uh, uh, content of the uh, those items becomes effectively unavailable to become glucose in the bloodstream because it can't really be uh, digested and absorbed in the small intestine. Rather, it goes to the large intestine and generates short-chain fatty acids. Um, as far as if this has any sort of health benefit, shoulder shrug. Yeah, I think it, I think it's an interesting area, and like and like you mentioned with these five types, you can really nerd out on this big time. But I think it's definitely a kind of an an interesting and somewhat in emerging, particularly with the four and five kind of area of of research. We'll get to come back to it in a little bit in terms of you know there, there's some uh, impacts that consuming these foods can have on. Uh, blood sugar. Uh, so that might have some relevance for somebody who's, uh, you know, somebody say with, with uh, diabetes, whether it's difficult to control or whether they're aiming to control as much as possible through diet, there, there may be some foods from this group that, you know, if they're aiming to um, maybe tighten up their glucose control through diet, uh, maybe minimize their, you know, how much of, uh, you know, additional medication may be necessary, some, uh, things like that. There may be some uh, a place for substituting foods that are higher in, in resistant starch for those that are either, you know, have, have none or that they have, uh, tend to have very significant kind of blood sugar excursions uh, after eating. Yeah. I view it as kind of like the final frontier of dietary pattern manipulation that most yeah. people don't make it to or don't yeah. need to make it to. So, but yeah, it's, it's like, okay, your, your broader dietary pattern is on point. Your calorie intake is on point. Your adherence level is, you know, 3,000. It's high. And then uh, we're looking for that maybe small benefit from a health outcome, not performance outcome, but health outcome if you have a uh, some, some, metabolic, uh, some metabolic issues like type 2 diabetes, for example. Yeah. Um, maybe. And even then, maybe. But, you know. <laughs> Somebody's listening to this and they're like, I'm a healthy 28-year-old, you know, individual who's active. My dietary pattern is good. My The calories are appropriate. My body composition is good. Like, should I be trying to consume a bunch of resistant starch? Yeah. Don't worry about it. Just move <laughs> on. Just move on with your life. Okay. All right. So we talked – that was insoluble fiber. So resistant starch type of insoluble fiber. We'll come back and talk about this with respect to uh, certain health uh, health outcomes. The other type of fiber is soluble fiber. And as Austin described earlier, this stuff is soluble in water. So it becomes viscous, gummy in water, almost completely fermented. Uh, in contrast to insoluble fiber, which helps bulk up the fecal content, uh, this, is, this doesn't do that. Uh, rather, it mostly delays the emptying of contents from the stomach, which we call gastric emptying. It also happens to decrease nutrient absorption a little bit, usually by forming these sort of like in this barrier around the nutrients themselves, so making them harder to absorb. Uh, so this is one of the mechanisms by which it can like decrease lipid absorption, uh, cholesterol, dietary cholesterol absorption, uh, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, as far as the actual types of soluble fiber, pectins. These are found in fruit cell walls, such as apples or pears. And believe it or not, some people, particularly uh, medical professionals of the duck variety, and if you don't get that joke, I'm talking about quacks, will say that consumption of pectins um, are a unique risk factor for developing obesity. In other words, they're telling you the fruit makes you <laughs> gain weight, which, you know, I, uh, yeah, I got to tip my hat. That's, that's some, that's, that's an interesting, interesting play cotton. Let's see how that works out for them. Um, anyway, so pectins are usually found in fruit cell walls, such as apples or pears, gums is actually like a, uh, bot botanical, like, you know, repair defense sort of mechanism. It's like a, it's secrete, this is secreted at the site of plant injuries. It's found in oatmeal, barley, legumes, beta glucans, uh, another type of soluble fiber. It's found in cereals, oat products, barley, um, some mushrooms, and then psyllium, which is obtained from psyllium seeds. This is a functional fiber. Usually if people talk about psyllium husk, it's a type of soluble fiber. Um, but yeah, those are the two major categories, soluble versus insoluble. Uh, one sort of addition here, just like to kind of wrap this in a, in a bow. Um, 
you know, people who are considering, you know, dietary fiber and adding it, uh, you know, to their, uh, or maybe increasing it to, to kind of shore up their dietary pattern are like, well, what about a smoothie? Can I make a smoothie and, and, you know, increase with a bunch of vegetables and or, uh, fruit in it or something to really increase my dietary fiber intake, you know, whether it's insoluble, soluble or, or whatever, uh, answer maybe depending on how you're making it. So the biggest difference between like juicing and uh, making a smoothie, like with like a blender or a magic bullet or something like that, that a juicer effectively doesn't let any of the pulp or, you know, the, the outside covering of a of fruit or vegetable into the juice. It's just the juice, hence the name juicer. Uh, <laughs> smoothie, on the other hand, basically blends everything up and you get everything that was, you know, in the fruit or veg- fruit and or vegetable into this, you know, homogenous mixture. So juicing, unfortunately, removes the pulp and the dietary fiber from the food that you're consuming, whereas a smoothie, you know, making making that doesn't. And so if you're going to make a smoothie, that's cool. But if you're making, if you're juicing, uh, probably not the same as adding you know, fruits and vegetables to your diet. So just a, an aside there, because that's a common question we get asked. Yeah, I generally steer, I mean, I get asked that a lot from patients too, and I tend to steer them away from juicing in general, most of the time. The <laughs> just, just in general, that's your... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of times these questions are coming up from people who are, you know, trying to lose body fat, for example, and that is sure. not typically an approach that I would take in terms of like consuming a lot of liquid calories, particularly in forms that are stripped of, of their fiber content. So um, yep. if, if, if they are dead set on, you know, consuming a drinkable solution like this, I will steer them towards blending rather than juicing, uh, most, uh, you know, essentially all the time. Yeah. That's the same thing as, uh, my similar sort of sentiment towards, um, you know, these greens powders or like supplemental fruit and vegetable concentrates, you know? Um, so if you, if you think about like, and, and this ties into our next section, like, getting people to consume more fruits and vegetables, whole grains, legumes, et cetera, that's part of a broad dietary pattern change for most folks, right? Which, which has, you know, kind of far reaching effects. If, if you get somebody to start doing that, they're generally, their calorie intake goes down, like a lot of simultaneous changes to their diet that are, that are happening, um, versus just adding a smoothie or a shake, you know, which I don't think accomplishes the same thing. In addition, like, the satiety, you know, the uh, sure. yeah. feeling full from mm-hmm. eating those those actual fruits and vegetables is different than having a liquid shake. Um, we're just, and as it turns out, not really. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we're not really set up very well to uh, to compensate for liquid calories, as it turns out. But uh, okay, that actually ties in next to the next section about dietary fiber and uh, how it actually works. Doctor Austin, uh, why don't you take people through the uh, kind of mechanisms behind dietary fiber, like dietary fiber, how though? <laughs> yes. Uh, so we, we mentioned briefly some of the effects that these fibers have when we went through them uh, just before. Um, the overview of this is, again, these these fibers, these dietary components can change the way your stomach empties food into the uh, small intestine. It can alter the actual digestion and absorption of that food in the small gut. It can alter how long it takes to tra- traverse the small and large intestine, and it uh, uh, this all of this has impacts on uh, you know a variety of things with respect to digestion, absorption, metabolism, but also uh, even things like carcinogens that come in the diet. Uh, some of those effects can alter the extent to which we're even exposed to carcinogens in the gut. Carcinogens being a fancy word to describe chemicals or, or uh, you know molecules that tend to increase the risk of cancer uh, development, particularly by, you know, inducing uh, genetic mutations in, in our cells. So if we consume a food or, or, or something that tends to have uh, cancer promoting effects, um, if that is coming into the body in the context of a whole lot of fiber that can alter the extent to which our bodies, particularly our gut walls are exposed to those carcinogens. And that has some impacts or some consequences for risks of cancers such as colon cancer that we'll get to in a little bit. Um, so as far as, you know, starting from the top with the, with the stomach, so to speak, um, the, the 
consequences of fiber mixing with water to form that kind of viscous gummy mixture in the stomach. Um, it just kind of slows things down up there in terms of how quickly it's just going to run through uh, uh, your stomach and, and dump into the small intestine. And our stomach, there's there's a variety of, of uh, mechanisms. There's mechanical, you know, mechanisms and, and some hormonal mechanisms that um, basically sense how full, how stretched our stomach is, the contents, and all of that has impacts on our perception of satiety, uh, how full we feel, basically. And so, um, when things empty from the stomach a bit uh, slower, that can result in us feeling more full sooner. Um, and that tends to, you know, have impact for overall energy and, and calorie intake. And so that can be an important, uh, uh component, uh, or that can be kind of a useful lever to, to, to manipulate in the context of obesity, metabolic, uh, conditions like diabetes, uh, uh, things like that. Um, so you want to tackle this next one, Jordan? Uh, oh yeah. So in addition to slowing down how quickly the food, uh, that's been mixed around in the stomach, which we call once it once it's being released from the stomach, we call that chyme. Uh, in addition to slowing down how how quickly that is released into the small intestine, it actually reduces the mixing of G, the contents in the small intestine and the enzymatic uh, activity in that area. So, just in general, again, most of the enzymatic breakdown of food and absorption of that food, which is now in its constituent macronutrients and in smaller products. Um, happens in the small intestine. When dietary fiber is present, particularly in, high, in higher amounts, it reduces the surface area of the food's ability to mix with those pancreatic enzymes. Um, the pancreas basically makes and then releases those uh, enzymes into the small intestine to, like again, break down protein to amino acids, break down carbohydrates into glucose or other, uh, you know, single unit uh, uh, carbohydrates. Um, breaks down fats into uh, free fatty acids, etc. But with fiber, it effectively forms this like envelope kind of around those foods and says, uh-uh, pa- uh-uh, uh-uh, pancreatic enzymes, don't, you can't do this, you can't get in. It reduces the mixing of the contents with those enzymes. Um, also, and so overall, that effect is to delay the sort of absorption of glucose, which is again, the breakdown product of carbohydrates, amino acids, the breakdown product of proteins and fatty acids, the breakdown products of fats, dietary fats, uh, delays that absorption. So, you know, one thing people commonly will know about how dietary fiber like affects these, you know, kinetics of food is that, oh yeah, it results in lower blood sugar. Uh, amount that your blood sugar goes up after a meal is less with dietary fiber. That's true. Because it de- not only does it delay the emptying of the contents from the stomach, but it also delays how quickly you're taking up that that sugar. Uh, also, it tends to influence certain hormones like glucagon, like peptide one. Um, so effectively, that goes up uh, with dietary fiber intake, uh, specifically uh, when it's delaying the sort of uptake of uh, protein and and uh, carbohydrates and fats, and it also decreases insulin release. So this may be, you know, this is one of the mechanisms that we see that can be beneficial for individuals with conditions like type 2 diabetes, for example. Um, just one of the dietary pattern changes that you'd like to see um, uh, in, a, in a person who's trying to control their blood sugar. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, between the d- delayed, you know, gastric emptying, so delayed uh, uh, the slower release of contents from the stomach, the reduced mixing that happens and reduced enzymatic activity that happens uh, in both the small intestine, this ultimately changes how quickly things go through the small intestine. Um, So in general, soluble fibers, the ones that form that gel, that viscous material, uh, slow down how quickly things are going through the small intestine. So longer time. Um, Whereas insoluble fibers, the ones that you know don't form into that gummy, uh, viscous material with water speed up the transit time, make you go to the bathroom, um, and ultimately that decreases absorption uh, when you when you speed up the transit time. So this uh, next section uh, on you know how all of these changes kind of sum <clears throat> to affect uh, nutrient absorption is is pretty interesting, and I, you know you're our resident. Uh, lipid nerd. So uh, <laughs> if you want to tackle this one. Yeah, the, the lipid uh, 
circulation systems are, are quite complex. And, and we've talked a bit about it uh, before as far as how there's kind of the exogenous pathway of, of consuming dietary fats and lipids and how that can uh, end up, how that comes in through the gut, gets absorbed, sent to the liver, processed, and then you have your endogenous where your body is repackaging these things and sending them back out to the body uh, from the liver. Additionally, a lot of uh, these blood lipids and cholesterol are used to make bile acids, and bile acids are things that are made by the liver, sometimes uh, stored by the gallbladder, but ultimately secreted into the small intestine to aid in the digestion of fats. Um, but additionally, that is one way that we actually can kind of excrete and get rid of lipids and, and cholesterol. However, um, when you put something into the gut, the gut, what it knows how to do is to absorb things. And so there is this circulation that happens between the gut and the liver. It's called the enterohepatic circulation, where your liver is making these bile acids using cholesterol, dumping it in the gut, and some, some fraction of that is getting reabsorbed and taken back to the liver. And if the goal is to reduce somebody's blood lipids for cardiovascular you know, reasons, reduce their, their uh, lipoprotein levels, their blood cholesterol levels, things like that, then it can be beneficial to actually limit how much of that uh, gets reabsorbed in the gut and sent back to the liver because that's just one way that your body is hanging on to this stuff when you would rather uh, uh, excrete it. So dietary fiber through a few different mechanisms has some that we've mentioned has some impact on your ability to reabsorb some of these bile acids that have been put into the into the gut leading to them being excreted rather than being reabsorbed and recirculated again. So ultimately, this ends up kind of working similarly to some other medications um, in terms of their effects. So one medicine is called azetamibe or zetia that some patients may, may be on, some listeners may be familiar with or may have heard of, that can also impact kind of gut absorption and liver reabsorption of some of these uh, bile acids and uh, uh, lipid uh, components that ultimately leads to lower blood lipids and overall to, to lower cardiovascular risk. Um, and so there's some effects on absorption, reabsorption, there's some effects on, you know, metabolism, cholesterol biosynthesis, things like that, um, that are probably, you know, if, if this hasn't already glazed some eyes over, that would get <laughs> right. there. But really, you know, the, the, the overall point here is, again, this is just another example of how the dietary fibers are modulating kind of the overall digestion and absorption process. And, and this one, this is a particular context where that can be a benefit for, you know, blood lipid cardiovascular outcomes. The only other caveat I would add is that, you know, you mentioned that there's some there's some context where, you know, might speed up transit time, might change, you know, absorption like this example I'm giving here. But I would not want people to suddenly think, oh, no, if I eat more dietary fiber, that's going to lead me to become malnourished because I'm not absorbing my my nutrients, um, that I'm going to become deficient in some vitamins or minerals or something like that because I'm eating a high fiber diet. That doesn't really nah. happen. So Nope. Yeah, it doesn't. And so, you know. If it did, we would see case report after case report after case report after case report. And then, you know, uh, populations that have the higher dietary fibers, uh, which have been studied, they would be rife with mal, you know, malnourishment. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't happen. Which uh, we, al we also don't see. So, yeah. you know, one less thing to worry about. Yeah. Um, and then the, the last sort of fiber, how though, as far as how it works, is, is kind of something we alluded to earlier. Just it's part of this broader health promoting dietary pattern. So, Basically, if you adopt a dietary pattern that has a lot of dietary fiber, uh, you're going to be consuming a lot of, uh, uh, you know, nutrient dense foods, and um, there you're affected. You're probably going to be consuming less calories on average than someone with a low fiber, low fruit and vegetable matter diet, um, and that all can be useful. If you have a, a dietary pattern that provides energy that of low nutrient uh, density uh, and low uh, dietary fiber, particularly early in life, this may also sort of uh, drive these uh, subclinical biological like processes that lead to disease later on in life. Um, this has actually been some, some new data has been coming out about, uh, you know, how early life dietary patterns influences disease development later on in life. So like the dietary fiber recommendations for uh, very young individuals, they're there to start promoting this healthy dietary pattern. In any case, I don't want people to think like the only way that dietary fiber works are like these 
mechanisms that we described, you know, these mechanical or, uh, uh, you know, physiological sort of changes with the change in small intestine transit time or absorption or whatever. It's like, again, think about your, the, the standard American diet the, or, or what you perceive to be the standard American diet, which may not actually be accurate, but we'll get there. And then you have that person switch to eating six to 10 servings of fruits and vegetables a day, you know, and some whole grains and some legumes, high in dietary fiber. It's like, what would that do to their total calorie intake? It'd probably go down, right? Obviously, their total fiber intake is going to go up. Um, and then that may also change other things in their diet, maybe less dietary fat, maybe a little more protein, potentially beneficial from that aspect. Um, yeah, it's just, it's more complicated. All right. So we talked about fiber, how though, how it works. Let's talk about fiber. What though, what <laughs> specifically with uh, respects to different disease processes does it do? Uh, again, I gotta, I gotta throw the mic over to our resident, you know, lipid nerd. What sort of impact does dietary fiber have on uh, what most people would refer to as heart disease. So this atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Yeah. So I don't think we need to rehash, you know, the whole kind of overview of the topic because we've talked about it quite a bit on prior podcasts and lectures and things like that. But overall, you know, we recognize that blood lipids are, are an extreme, you know, extremely uh, important uh, driver of atherosclerosis uh, and, and cardiovascular disease. And so there, to the extent that we can lower lifelong exposure to blood lipids, uh, you know, potentially starting from, from early life, then we have uh, kind of this amplifying, magnifying effect over the course of the lifespan such that, you know, if somebody's blood lipids are lower earlier in life and sustain that way, then somebody will be at markedly lower lifetime cardiovascular risk compared to somebody whose blood lipids are either higher earlier in life and stay that way or whose blood lipids get really high, like in, you know, early middle age and then stay that way for, you know, 30 years or something like that. Cause that's when we end up seeing those kind of cardiovascular events start to appear in most people, uh, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s kind of, kind of age range. And so the increasing uh, dietary fiber content has very, you know, important, I would say, uh, effects on blood lipids as well as on blood pressure, which is one of the other major cardiovascular risk factors. And, and interestingly, um, there is essentially, you know, just about a linear kind of relationship between increasing dietary fiber content and its effects in terms of reducing blood LDL levels. Uh, and so we can see you know, for every gram or so of dietary fiber uh, that somebody consumes, it would lo- we would expect it to lower somebody's LDL cholesterol by somewhere on the order of 2.2 milligrams per deciliter, uh, uh, give or take. And ultimately, to the extent that that can, you know, reduce somebody's blood LDL levels over time, then those end up resulting in kind of commensurate, uh, predictable reductions in their risk uh, and their rates of uh, cardiovascular disease. So for every about 38 or so milligrams per deciliter that their LDL drops, then there's going to be about a 20% reduction in their rates of, of cardiovascular disease. And so, you know, you can even take that further and say, okay, so there's effects on blood lipids, there's effects on blood pressure, there's other kind of, uh, uh, you know, effects on the di- uh, uh, digestion, absorption, metabolism of certain foods. And to the extent that that has impacts on body weight, weight loss, for example, then that can definitely have further impacts, not only on these risk factors. Uh, so losing weight can itself have impacts on blood lipids and blood pressure, obviously, but but independent of those, it can also result in reductions in cardiovascular risk. Um, and you know, more is generally better in these kind of situations to the extent that that can be achieved. Um, and so then the last thing that I would point out is that the expected benefit that you would see by doing these kind of interventions it really gets bigger and bigger the higher risk population you're dealing yeah. with. So, you know, the typical patients that I'm seeing in the hospital um, who may be there for, you know, evaluations of chest pain or who have known cardiovascular disease or something like that, people who are already very high risk, those are the folks who, if we can, you know, institute some of these, uh, uh, you know, lifestyle behavioral changes, they stand to benefit the most from this kind of thing. In contrast to the example you gave before, of the completely healthy 25 year old who's lean training, has no medical history, has normal blood pressure, normal blood lipids, no history of like early cardiovascular disease in the family, things like that, where the expected benefit of bumping his dietary fiber by 10 grams a day or something from his, for his lifetime cardiovascular risk is not going to be as 
impressive as it will be for people who are at high risk. And so that's, you know, I, we like to promote these uh, concepts and this information, these messages for, for the whole population, but really tend to push these things fairly aggressively in folks who are at very, very high risk, because those are the people who stand to benefit uh, the most in terms of uh, preventing, you know, heart attacks, strokes, uh, other bad outcomes, including death from, from these yeah. kind of things. Yeah, I think, you know, for the, to, to the extent that we have a substantial listening population who, you know, f- falls into that first category, you know, healthy, young, training, no medical, you know, all the, all those sort of things, the, the benefit of, you know, tackling this aspect of the dietary pattern is promoting long-term adherence to a health promoting <laughs> dietary pattern. It's like, yeah, I mean, it probably is not going to change anything in the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, maybe even 20 years, but 40 years from now, yeah. You know, having developed this pattern and habit earlier on and then potentially even more important like if if you have children you know what sort of dietary pattern are you promoting to them which certainly seems to have some some impact there particularly with dietary fiber and other eating eating uh patterns um all of that stuff there's just downstream effects so i while yes i agree that it is definitely more important for the immediate risk reduction in these high risk populations um I wouldn't tell people who are young, healthy, you know, whatever to just ignore it either. Yeah, agree. Not that you said that. I'm not saying yeah. that you said that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's, that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, what fiber can do from a, a heart disease risk from, uh, an obesity, uh, management, uh, and risk standpoint. Yeah. E- eating a higher fiber diet tends to result in a reduced calorie intake, mainly because the foods you're eating have a lower calorie intake. And they te- for the same amount of volume, and 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 so um, you end up eating a higher volume of food, which tends to promote satiety by a few different mechanisms. One is just like the mechanical distension of the stomach, for example. Uh, another via hormone release, secondary to dietary fiber intake. Uh, so certain hormones like glucagon, like peptide one, we talked about that earlier, tends to reduce hunger. Peptide YY, ghrelin. Um, again, none of those things you need to memorize or commit to memory because ultimately you're not going to be trying to manage your GLP one or peptide YY via any particular dietary strategy. But again, if you want to impress people at the bar, after you recite this Krebs cycle, you can talk about those three hormones <laughs> and hunger. And uh, if they don't run out, then they're a keeper. You should, yeah, you should be, either become best friends or, you know, yeah, <laughs> something yeah. like that. Um, in any case, with respect to obesity, the relationship between the epidemiological data, uh, effectively, is uh, commensurate between dietary fiber and weight loss. So the more dietary fiber increases, the greater the weight loss uh, and also the reduced amount of weight regain. Um, so in somebody, again, who you're, if you're the professional trying to counsel them on you know, making a lifestyle intervention, after you have some initial buy-in um, and you ask, you're asking them you know, what sort of strategies would they like to put in place um, to help them achieve their goal of weight loss, hopefully, one of those strategies um, would be that they want to eat more fruits and vegetables uh, or whole grains uh, or legumes. Um, if they don't bring that up, which would be odd because actually some data on like public health attitudes, you know, or the, the public's health attitudes towards uh, food shows that most of them actually know that dietary fiber is like health promoting for them. Uh, but let's say that they didn't come up with that strategy. You might want to nudge them in that direction. Um, to, to consume more dietary fiber, particularly from those foods. The next uh, disease uh, process that we have good data on is type 2 diabetes. So a bunch of different mechanisms, basically a bunch of different ways in which dietary fiber can improve uh, uh, outcomes with uh, for folks with type 2 diabetes. So one is weight loss. We just talked about that. Uh, two is um, basically you get improved uh, blood sugar control. Effectively, fiber uh, slows down the rate of uh, glucose absorption and reduces insulin secretion. So the, if you have somebody who's really trying to manage their blood sugar and blood insulin levels um, because they want to use less medication or they don't want to be on medication, which, you know, that's that's a good goal for somebody who uh, who, who can control this stuff with uh, diet and lifestyle. Um, dietary fiber is uh, important there. Uh, that being said, the data isn't uh, as good as we have for um, like cardiovascular disease. It's just complicated, which is exactly, you know, one of the things you might expect with a, a, 
uh, a disease pattern that that is so nuanced. Um, that being said, the data does show that there's 14 fewer deaths per thousand uh, in diabetics who are taking who are consuming 35 grams of fiber per day uh, compared to those who are consuming 20 grams of fiber per day. So that's significant. So you think about people who are already taking in 20 grams of fiber per day. Um, you know, that's not like they're taking in zero. They're eating some some fiber containing foods, but if you bump that up to 35 grams of fiber per day, we expect uh, 14 fewer deaths. Uh, and there does appear to be this dose response relationship: higher the dose of fiber, the imp- better the improvement in outcomes. You also see things like a reduced hemoglobin A1C, which is effectively a measure of how uh, tightly controlled your blood sugar has been for the last you know three months or so. Uh, your fasting glucose tends to go down, which is a, a uh, uh, another important factor in type 2 diabetes, uh, as Austin talked about earlier, your low-density lipoprotein, LDL, uh, would, uh, goes down, and that's important because individuals with type 2 diabetes are at high risk for cardiovascular disease. Uh, and then um, triglycerides also tends to go down. So it's like dietary fiber can be a very important um, lifestyle change for individuals with type 2 diabetes, um, provided they're willing to make that lifestyle change. Austin, you want to talk about uh, these GI conditions and uh, some some uh, the cancer cancer data? Yeah, sure. Um, so people may be familiar with um, certain situations where uh, a lower fiber diet may be recommended, and I wanted to address those because you know we're we're extolling the virtues of, of dietary fiber throughout this, and I didn't want to leave that out. So there are some bowel conditions two of which um, include irritable bowel syndrome and inflammatory bowel disease, which are IBS and IBD. They're commonly conflated, um, even though they are very distinct, clearly different things uh, uh, clinically. Irritable bowel syndrome is more of what's considered, it, it's got this, I don't know, I, I don't love the term functional disorder, but that's kind of how it's described a lot, where people get bloating, uh, particularly after meals, they get abdominal discomfort, particularly um, that's relieved with, with bowel movements. There can be diarrhea present or constipation present. And when uh, if they undergo endoscopy and get like biopsies taken, then the, the actual tissue, the mucosa, when they look at it on the microscope, looks pretty normal. Um, and this is a situation where sometimes uh, therapeutically in the short term, um, they might be recommended uh, something called a low FODMAP diet. And FODMAP is, a, is an acronym that stands for a bunch of things, including fructans and oligosaccharides and disaccharides. All of these things are various types of, <laughs> various types of uh, uh, dietary fibers. Um, I think I'm pretty sure that several of them are, are insoluble, but um, uh, regardless, they're, they're forms of dietary fibers and prebiotics that basically they end up getting fermented and then that is thought to generate some, some of the gas and the bloating and the discomfort and things like that. And so they might get recommended a lower fiber diet. Um, however, sometimes patients might, um, you know, end up staying on this for, for the long term. And, and we actually, you know, there's some evidence to suggest that there's some adverse consequences, some harm from being on a low, lower fiber diet over the long term. I know that you've cited before in some of our, our discussions and Q and A's, um, the, the data on, you know, celiac uh, patients with celiac disease who go on a, you know, a, a strict gluten-free diet to the extent that that ends up excluding all whole grains uh, from their diet, they end up having to, to a degree an increase in cardi- and lifetime cardiovascular risk mm-hmm. um, compared to, you know, healthy controls uh, uh, who are not, although there's obviously some other factors at play there potentially. Um, well, so this you, is some- even, even when you compare people who don't have celiac, but who are gluten-free, yeah. So that was the, that's the big, yeah. Cause otherwise you're like, well, they have celiac. So. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so this is a situation where there may be a role for a short term, uh, uh, kind of limitation of some of these dietary fibers in order to get some symptom improvement. But the idea is that you would not stay on it long-term. You would reintroduce as many of those foods as you could feasibly tolerate so that you could get that, uh, higher dietary variety, uh, and, and microbiome kind of effects and, and, and things like that, as well as kind of various off target, uh, general health promotion. So that's kind of the irritable bowel syndrome side of things. Uh, the inflammatory bowel disease is actually a truly inflammatory condition, i.e. where your immune system is actually attacking your, your intestines as well as uh, sometimes tissues outside of the uh, GI uh, system um, where, you know, they have bloody diarrhea and they can have fevers. And when you do endoscopy and you take biopsies, you actually see major changes to the tissues, inflammatory infiltrates and, and uh, necrosis and tissue death and things like that in some, in some situations. Um, and so this is a situation where particular, you know, there's, there's a lot of 
complex physiology and pathophys at play and, and the management of these conditions is complex. But once uh, disease remission is, is achieved, which can be done through a variety of ways, it's generally not recommended for these patients to limit dietary fiber outside of very specific context. And, and, and that's thought to be uh, at least in part due to what we mentioned before, as far as how these fibers get into the colon, they get fermented into these short chain fatty acids and other kind of anti-inflammatory kind of uh, uh, mediators. And so the thought is that they have inflammatory bowel disease and we shouldn't be kind of limiting this source of anti-inflammatory benefit in these patients when they don't limit their dietary fiber, assuming they're in a state of remission, they're not like actively flaring. These patients tend to do actually better if they're able to maintain um, uh, their dietary fiber intake. So just wanted to clear that up because there's a lot of discussion on the internet around these kind of topics of how maybe dietary fiber is thought to be harmful or should be eliminated forever. And that's really not, not the case. In fact, there are some risks and, and harms to, to doing so, as well as some, some plausible benefits to keeping it, uh, keeping it in the context of the diet. Yeah. I, th I think the thought is like that dietary fiber is somehow like mechanically Ir inflammatory. Irritating. Yeah. Not yes. the case. And so it's like, all right, well, if it's irritable, irritable or inflammatory in both cases, you should limit it. Right. And it's like, yeah. mm, no, not necessarily what the data says. It's very similar yeah. to the whole exercise, like an immune system relationship. Right. People, yeah. you know, they exercise like reduces your immune system's ability to like ward off infection. It's like, no, it actually does the opposite. <laughs> it, does, it, it increases the activity and surveillance and, you know, all sorts of stuff with your immune system. And so it's like, you know, again, intuition here will fail you most of the time uh, <laughs> when we start yeah. thinking about these complex things. All right, moving on. Cancer. Austin, what's the deal with cancer and dietary fiber? Yeah, this is a this is also another another big topic. But in in short, we've we've hammered kind of the effects as, as far as what happens to fiber when it gets into the, what when it gets into the colon can into the colon, and so the thinking is that several of those effects um, locally of the anti-inflammatory uh, mediators, things like that, as well as the effects on gut transit time, um, that can influence our um, our guts kind of exposure to potentially carcinogenic molecules. So, so our, how, how much we're exposed to things in the diet that can promote cancer. Like we've talked before about, you know, processed uh, diets, high in processed meat, for example, that are, that are, have a pretty clear relationship with colon cancer. Those are thought to be due to a variety of components in those foods that are carcinogenic or tend to promote cancer. So uh, having tons of dietary fiber might influence how much we're actually exposed to those as they pass on through. Um, and then the other would be the actual effects on the tissue itself. Some of these anti-inflammatory, anti-neoplastic, meaning, meaning anti-cancer uh, type effects locally in the tissues. And this is thought to also happen through a bunch of different mechanisms having to do with pH and bile acids and, and the actual microbiome and, and a variety of things, basically. And so there's a, there's a pretty, um, you know, uh, compelling, I'd say, body of evidence at this point that uh, diets that tend to be higher in fiber, um, uh, and in general, you know, a, a hint towards kind of the lower dietary fat intake, but in particular the high fiber uh, diets that have a reduction in the risk of colon cancers compared to individuals who eat little to no kind of dietary fiber and have the inverse kind of dietary pattern. Um, and, and I would say that these effects are, are probably not quite as uh, huge as we see like in the cardiovascular disease context. But I think that, you know, on a population level, um, you know, colon cancer is a big deal. And so to the extent that we can make some of these changes and, and get benefits across all of these different kind of areas, these organ systems, these disease states, then it's probably worth doing. And so that's kind of the, the summary of the, the colon cancer piece. There's a bunch more nuance that could be had there, but uh, I think, you know, for the sake of time, we can, we can probably move on. Um, sure. And there, there's also some epidemiologic evidence correlating uh, kind of levels of dietary fiber intake with a few other cancers, including gastric cancer. Um, and, and gastric cancer is an interesting one just because of its association with, with some of the processed meat intake in, in certain, uh, certain countries that tend to have high levels of intake uh, of that. Um, and, and even some other epidemiologic data, you know, on other cancers, including breast cancer and things like that. Although, again, you have to start looking at to what extent is this reflective of kind of general health state, because we know that breast cancer, for example, is, is associated with uh, obesity and the estrogen stimulation and things like that. So how much of this is directly from the fiber versus other uh, kind of mediating or, or, or other uh, uh, mechanisms that are at play. Um, but I think the colon cancer piece is probably the most compelling one um, and, and, a, and a good enough reason on its own to, to increase the, the dietary fiber intake. Sure. Yeah. I just, I, again, I just don't want people to kind of, think that it's just, hey, well, fiber, you know, is uh, mainly doing its work in the gut. 
So that's the only type of, you know, potential health benefit you can see from any aspect, like, you know, like with respect to cancer uh, risk, it's, you know, like it's only going to maybe reduce risk of colorectal cancer because, you know, that's where fiber is doing its doing its job. It's like, well, right. you got some data on, on other sources and, right. uh, you know, obviously helps reduce risk of cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, helps with uh, individuals with obesity. So, uh, you know, far-reaching systemic effects that, that seem to be pretty, pretty good. Um, yeah, so I, I would, I, I don't want to overstate you know, dietary fiber is like this panacea of like health promotion. But uh, yeah, I, I don't want to downplay it either. I think dietary fiber is an important component of a, a health promoting. And particularly, the, yeah, and particularly the dietary pattern that a high level of dietary fiber intake would reflect, I think is the overall yes. point that you're getting at, because then people might say, oh, I'll just supplement like crap tons of, of psyllium. And, and that's not necessarily what we're recommending. To the extent that you can nope. get it from foods, then you're going to get all kinds of other benefits from the dietary. Well, pattern. Spe- well speaking of foods, you know, I appreciate yeah. also that I, I, this was, I was like, Hey, if you could uh, do the common sources of fiber <laughs> from the food section, that'd be great. And if you guys looked, saw our, uh, <laughs> actual outline, <laughs> the outline, I think is like 10 pages for this thing. And it's pretty detailed, you know, as you might expect, except for this one section, literally f- five bullet points that Austin came up with. So that's great though. So let's talk about it. Where dietary sources of fiber, Austin, what do? Yeah. And, and I think this should be short because this is the most practical part of the whole thing where people can be like, all right, what do? So <laughs> like sure. um, the the main sources, we've, we've alluded to this several times uh, so far. Um, and, and again, to reiterate that of all these fancy subtypes and, and sub varieties of fiber, a lot of them are com- contained in various uh, combinations and in various parts of all these different foods. So fruits is a big one, vegetables, whole grain uh, uh, food products, uh, legumes, legumes meaning things like beans, lentils, chickpeas, things like that. And then, of course, there there's some from supplements. To the extent that people want to nerd out further on this and look at either, you know, a, a whole bunch of more specific dietary uh, fiber food sources, as well as uh, how much is in a particular portion, how much is in a particular amount of this food, I think a, there's a really nice resource. All you need to do is probably just search dietary fiber uh, 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 guidelines or dietary fiber source, uh, guidelines. And, and there's a a link that should come up on the first uh, page of results to the 2015 to 2020 dietary guidelines. And and it's titled appendix 13 food sources of dietary fiber. And if you open that up, there's a, there's a table there. It's, it's, uh, extensive and it includes all of these different dietary fiber food sources, contains a standard portion size, how much, how many calories are in that portion, and then how many, how much fiber is in that standard portion as well. So meaning, you know, people may want to um, figure out uh, which food source is going to give them the most bang for their buck in terms of the amount of fiber per, you know, certain number of calories, for example, or per, uh, uh, you know, 100 grams of this food that they can feasibly eat in a, in a, uh, in a sitting or something like that. And so I would definitely, you know, uh, rather than list all these things out, I think that that's a great resource and, and I'm sure we can include that in the, in the links for the, for the episode as well. Yeah. We'll put that in the description below. An, e- an easy sort of like uh, way to, you know, track this if you, if you don't want to, you know, if you don't have access to, or don't want to go on the website and, and, you know, plug all these exact numbers in basically every serving of fruit and vegetables is going to have about one and a half, two grams of fiber. So you just take the amount of servings of fruit and vegetables you have and multiply it by a one and a half. Uh, if it's a refined carbohydrate, so heavily processed, uh, you multiply the number of servings you have by one, it gives you your fiber content. And if it's whole grains, you can multiply it by two and a half. Same thing with lentils, uh, legumes, etc. cetera. Um, so that's one way. But as far as like how much you're supposed to get, um, Right now, there is only an adequate intake. Uh, so there, you know, people talk about dietary reference intakes, DRIs. And there's really four different types, which are ultimately unimportant to this conversation. Um, but right now, there's only an adequate intake. And so the adequate intake <clears throat> for dietary fiber is uh, for up to age 50, it's 38 grams for men and 25 grams for women. And people are like, yo, why is there a difference? And the difference really comes down to calorie intake uh, recommendations for women versus men, which is due to different size, you know, uh, different body weights. Um, so that's 
that's the big deal there. But 38 grams uh, for men, 25 grams for women up to the age of 50. After 50, uh, the dietary uh, fiber intake uh, for men is 30 grams and for women, 21 grams. And again, this just due to, is usually due to a change in uh, body weight and uh, or total calorie intake from, from body weight changes and physical activity uh, changes. So <clears throat> that being said, the evidence right now effectively shows the best outcomes for individuals uh, consuming greater than 25 grams of fiber per day, greater than 25 grams of fiber per day. So effectively, the the incidence of cardio uh, cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes, colorectal cancer, etc., all go down. Um, and remember, we keep talking about this like nearly linear dose dependent relationship between dietary fiber intake and like good stuff. Like brought it up over and over and over again. Effectively, it's like look, the more dietary fiber you can get in, like the better. And so people take that and they, that what they think that means is that I should just consume as much fiber as possible. And, and, and they take that to mean I need to take supplemental fiber. And unfortunately, outside of like cardiovascular disease, the, the evidence for uh, supplemental fiber, especially psyllium husk is the, is the one that's been like really well studied in, in cardiovascular disease risk, um, it just doesn't really hold up as well as well rather as, uh, as making dietary changes to get more dietary fiber in. Um, so specifically fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains. So yeah, look, if you wanted to, to state something like get as much dietary fiber as you can, uh, in via dietary sources, I'm cool with that, but I wouldn't recommend taking a bunch of extra supplemental fiber to like, you know, take in 70 or 80 grams of fiber per day. That's yeah. That I would not there definitely, there, there's, um, there's, as you said, a, a pretty, at least a linear in, in some contexts, um, evidence of, of ongoing benefit for higher levels of intake, the col like the colon cancer benefit, for example, it extends, you know, if ongoing benefit well over 50 grams a day uh, uh, from diet uh, and, and, and higher from there. I've had some patients, for example, those who have familial hypercholesterolemia, uh, genetic reasons for extremely high blood cholesterol levels, who um, when I went through and, and discussed the, the situation with them, obviously those are situations where medications are typically required, but on top of that, had patients who were willing to consume, you know, 75, 100 plus grams of, of fiber from actual foods a day, which was uh, kind of impressive in, as a feat in itself. But it is, it is something that can be used kind of almost therapeutically for their, their particular situation. So, I, I, you know, you mentioned that we have this kind of level of evidence around the, that 25 to 30 kind of gram level of intake. But just to be clear that, you know, if, you know, you want to get as much benefit as you can, then more is, is uh, appears to be better um, in this uh, in this context. Yeah, particularly through dietary fiber. Yeah. Rather yeah, than, it's, it's not just like, yo, I've got an extra 100 calories left to meet my daily calorie intake. Let me take 25 grams of fiber from psyllium husk. Right, right. One, gross. <laughs> Two, <laughs> I don't know how much benefit that's going to do for you. Uh, again, outside of... Um, uh, potentially cardiovascular disease risk, in which case psyllium husk has like been shown to be a pretty good, pretty good for modifying, uh, for reducing uh, uh, lipid levels, uh, particularly LDL and, and triglycerides. But uh, that being said, I, I I would prefer that people try to get their dietary fiber from dietary sources. Again, fruits, vegetables, legumes, uh, whole grains. It, the interesting thing is, right now only only about six percent of Americans are actually exceeding. This uh, uh, only six percent of Americans uh, aged one year or older are actually exceeding this uh, adequate intake for dietary fiber. So uh, you know we're not we're not really doing a good job there. That but people understand that dietary fiber is health promoting. So this 2013 Food and Health Survey by the Food Information Council, you know, 85 percent of respondents you know reported that they knew that dietary fiber was useful for maintaining a healthy digestive system. Three quarters of them reported they knew it was important for weight management. Half of them, you know, reported they they knew dietary fiber was good for quote unquote heart health or healthy blood sugar. Uh, you know, they they also most people think that they're consuming enough fiber, but only one in twenty are doing it. So there's there's some disconnect here, right? And a, a lot of it has to do with how people shop for food. You know, just not a lot of people are like looking at the label. Like only 15% of consumers actually look anywhere other than the front of the package. So if they see like whole grains, that's probably good. 
Um, but ultimately, you know, people just aren't eating enough dietary fiber. The average intake uh, for adults over 20 is, you know, about 16 grams of fiber overall, everybody included. You know, they eat 80 grams of protein a day, 250 grams of carbohydrates, uh, 120 of that is sugar, and, uh, you know, 77 grams of fat, 25 of which is saturated fat, but only 16 grams of fiber. And we're asking people effectively to double their fiber intake. Yeah. So how do you, how do, you do that? Well, to the extent that you can just make a recommendation and people are going to follow it, it would be eating more fruits and vegetables and whole grains and, and legumes, you know, but obviously there's, there's access issues and other complicated social, political, environmental things that are going on. And, you know, that's, that's another podcast. Yep. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. All right. So take homes from the fiber. What do podcast uh, one, uh, most people don't eat enough dietary fiber, even though they think they do, would recommend consuming more dietary fiber from fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, um, trying to get over that 30 gram per day mark. You can go higher than that if you want to, but would not necessarily recommend supplemental fiber uh, unless you need to for another reason, but would recommend getting you know basically as much fiber as, as you want to get in per day from dietary fiber sources. Um, yeah. That's the main takeaway here uh, from a practical standpoint, from a health standpoint. looks like there's like this linear in some cases, but otherwise dose-dependent relationship between dietary fiber intake and good health outcomes, particularly with respect to heart disease, with respect to type 2 diabetes, obesity management, potentially cancer risk, and other cool stuff. Um, so, you know, would recommend increasing dietary fiber intake. Uh, yep. Austin, any, any other practical takeaways you'd like to include? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that that uh, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> it, it, it. It's not that it's not that complicated. However, I mean, I think the the art of it is is each person, you know, their individual strategy that they're that they can use to actually achieve this in a sustainable way might be different. In other, and that and that's going to sure. come down to, like you said, all kinds of social, economic, environmental, uh, uh, educational, in terms of like knowledge of how to cook, prepare certain foods just personal preferences of what foods they like. I mean, probably even the uh, dietary patterns that me and you consume are probably, you know, to some extent different in terms of, you know, our preferences for where dietary fiber sources come from, for example, and, and that's going to influence how we go about, you know, achieving this, this target. And so if um, you need guidance on that, then definitely consulting with the, you know, a healthcare professional and dietitian, something like that to, to um, help you, uh, as far as identifying what kinds of uh, options or sources you can you can prepare, but there's obviously tons of uh, information available on the internet if you're comfortable, you know, uh, pursuing things on your own that way too. So yeah, no one way to to hit these targets, but um, it's important that you do. I agree. Very good. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Again, this is episode uh, one hundred and eight, uh, one hundred nine rather or uh, the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Joined as always, Dr. Austin Baraki. Uh, do us a huge solid. If you're listening to this on your smartphone or wherever, just you know, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It uh, really helps drive traffic to our podcast. You know, our, our review number was just stuck at 666 for a while. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not, you know, that doesn't mean anything to me outside of like at powerlifting meets where Gino is the announcer, yeah. like you just, yeah, it's, you get this huge graphic with his face in front of flames. And then it just, you know, that you're going to get the call out about 666. So you can never ask for 302.5 kilos to be loaded on the barbell because that just is excessive and ultimately I I, distracting. I think I did at nationals. You did. Year. Yes, correct. <laughs> I have it on video and I, you hear me in the background just laughing. So yes. Yeah. In any case, uh, help us get over that hump. Go leave us a, a review and a, and a rating. That's super helpful. Helps us, you know, be motivated to put out content here every Monday on the Barbell Medicine channel. So thanks again for listening. We'll see you guys next week. We'll